I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Everyone should learn how to code. Felina, assistant professor at Delft University of Technology, explains the importance of learning to code even if we're not going to code for a living. We talked about her approach to teach kids about programming and software engineering. Felina is bringing teaching methods seen in other disciplines. She explained the progress the children make and how to create an inclusive environment that keeps them engaged. To learn more about the topics of the show, sign up for the monthly newsletter by going to thewomenintechshow.com. Thank you for listening. Felina is joining us today from the Netherlands. Felina, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Thank you. Today we're going to be talking about programming and teaching programming to kids. First, I want to clarify for you, what is programming? That's a deep question to start with. I think the easiest answer to what is programming is programming is making a computer do things. That's the basics of it, I guess. And there's this thing recently where a lot of people are trying to teach programming. Everyone should learn to program. My view of this is that even if you're not going to be programming for a living, you should learn about it because you are a consumer of these things. Why do you think everyone should learn to program? Yes, I think there are many reasons. And the nicest analogy I like to make is with writing. We want everyone, all kids, to be able to write a little bit. They don't all need to be book authors. Like you say with programming, even if they're not going to use it in as part of their job, we still want people to know writing so that they can participate in society because everything is written. And If you don't agree with, I don't know, the city council on something, you can send them a letter in protest. And I think more and more our society is going towards programming and data analysis also as a means of communication. Maybe next time if you send a letter to the city to complain about something, you say, well, I looked at your data and no one gets a parking ticket in that street, so why am I getting one? And that data and programming literacy is more and more needed to participate in the world, but also to understand the world. If you look at recent events like the 2016 US elections, It was all about software, the Facebook bubble and email hacking and WikiLeaks. Software is influencing everything. And in, in order to be able to understand, for example, the situation with Hillary Clinton's email server, how bad was it really? You need to have some understanding of software and programming. That's a really good point, actually. And like you said, if you know about these topics, you can even question, why am I only seeing one perspective in Facebook? Because you're aware of the social media bubble and things like that. Exactly. And you also, you understand that it's not all that difficult for Facebook to show you messages that you only agree with. Because if you know some programming, you can understand how hard it will be. Whereas if you have no understanding of programming, then maybe you think, well, how does a computer know what I like? I'm sure I'm not being influenced because the computer cannot possibly know that. So some knowledge of how difficult it is to make something really changes your view on what you're being served, for example, on the internet. Let's talk about your work teaching kids to program. When I was reading about this in your blog, you said that there are currently a lot of tools like 
books and apps to teach children, but these are focused on getting a program to work and they are not teaching software engineering skills, which are very important. What skills are the children missing out on when they're just focusing on building something and getting a program to work? Collaboration will be my number one pick because software education is often about teaching kids programming, teaching them a for loop and a variable and an if statement. But more and more, of course, we know this as professional programmers, programming is about collaboration. It's about writing code that is easy to read, for example, that doesn't suffer from horrible code smells and design flaws, but also being able to explain source code in a proper way, for example, in a commit message or in a pull request and looking at someone else's code in a pull request and giving constructive feedback on how you can improve so that it can be merged into the system. All these skills that relate to the quality of source code and the collaboration around source code often aren't really taught. Whereas even if you're not a professional programmer, being able to communicate about the things that you write is really an important skill in programming and also in many other fields. That's true. From what I remember, is mostly an isolated experience where either they walk you through a system that you're going to build, like something similar to Twitter or this little app and things like that. And you're addressing this through a massive open online course. What exactly are the software engineering skills that you are teaching through this course? Yeah, so in the course, we're not only teaching software engineering skills. It's a mix of programming and software engineering skills. So we actually brand it as a programming course. And then secretly, we also put in some programming, uh, some software engineering, I mean. So the concepts that we talk about, for example, are good naming. How do you name a variable? You don't know name it X and Y because that's quite confusing. You want to give good names. Another one we talk about is long methods. If you have lots and lots of lines of code or you scratch your visual programming language or it's a big stack of blocks, then it's harder to read. And we show that to kids as well. So in the course, I create a program and I tell them, whoa, this is lots of code. It's, it's, don't you agree? It's starting to be very hard to understand. And then we pick it apart. So we're not only talking to them about quality, but also about the improvements or refactoring and creating your own blocks, for example, to battle duplication and long methods are also part of the course. Did these kids have some prior exposure to programming? Some of them do. Okay. We don't assume it, but we do ask in the questionnaire that kids take when they start, do you have some programming experiences? Some do. Some have done Scratch before, for example, or they've done Lego Mindstorms. It's a robotics kit that teaches kids programming. But we assume no knowledge. So we do explain everything from the beginning. But yeah, you see that kids are interested in programming. If they've done some programming and then they want to learn more, they're also totally welcome in the course. Because our focus is slightly different. Even kids that are experienced programmers would still pick up on the other skills. And even the Lego Mindstorms and Scratch, which is a program MIT created, they're, like you said, sets of blocks that you can connect. And these end up translating to things like for loop, etc. right? Yeah, so for loop, for example, is nice because the shape of the block is a little bit like a C. So it has an opening in which you can put lines of code, so more blocks. And if statement, for example, has the shape of a fork with three fork legs, so you can put in the if statement, the condition, 
and in the other two holes you put in the true branch and the false branch. So the shapes of the blocks also help you understand a little bit what the block is supposed to be doing. And earlier you mentioned that you show the kids this block of code, which you're trying to explain to them that long methods, they're hard to read. I also saw that one approach in your course is to show a completely finished program first, and then you ask the kids, what is this doing? What sort of things have they learned through this dynamic, which is kind of unusual? I think the normal approach is you start small and you keep building the blocks, and this is the exact opposite. Yeah, correct. This is an approach we've taken from literary education. Actually, we take many of our approaches from teaching kids writing because writing and programming are quite similar. So often if you talk to kids about stories, even before they can read or write, you tell them stories. So before they start writing letters, they already have a conception of what a story is and there's a character and maybe there's a, you know, a, a bad guy and a story can be exciting or romantic. They have knowledge already of the things you can create with words and that gets them really excited. So the same can be true for programming where we show them this is what you can build and now pick apart the blocks. And especially Scratch, because it's a live programming language, you can take one of those blocks and if you double-click it, that block is executed in separation. Just that block. So it's really easy when you have a big program to just take one block, execute it, and gain an understanding of what the block is doing. If you think of doing that in a language like, I don't know, Java or PHP, it's very hard to get an idea of what does this line of code contribute to the whole program. But because Scratch is a live system, it's easier. So it's more suitable for an approach in which kids get to explore a completed program instead of starting from scratch. Because, of course, we have the assumption, a secret assumption that no one really expresses, that if we just teach kids to make a program, then they will learn to make a program. But in many other fields, this isn't necessarily true. Think, for example, about if you're training for a marathon, you're not doing a marathon every day. That's ridiculous. You'll do small things. You'll do like interval training or you run 30 kilometers, but at a lower speed. You do all these other things and that ultimately leads you to be able to do a marathon. But you never do a marathon as practice or maybe one, but that is already almost stretching it. So what about if programming could be a little bit more like that, where we do small exercises that are not the end goal, but they're still contributing to the learning. And actually, this reminds me of data science and machine learning, where now you can program in Python, but you use this thing called Jupyter Notebook. So it's exactly the same thing you're describing. There are little blocks you can create and you can execute as you go or re-execute something. Yes, and you're very much also encouraged to interleave programming and documentation, which is also a form of sort of communication. So Jupyter Notebooks are really lovely because indeed they are small pieces that help you explore, but they also really help you document. You mentioned an important point about comparing programming with writing. Another example that I saw you talk about is the notion of establishing a constraint can be helpful. And the example that you give is in writing that there's this exercise called backwards land. Can you explain this? Yes. So many writing exercises are about creativity, but we all know that creating stuff is really hard. So if you tell kids to write a story, then 
it's very hard to be creative. So often what exercises do is they indeed have a constraint on them to help your creativity. And Backwards Land is just an example I took from one of the teacher's book. It's... Um, Imagine you go to a land where everything is backwards. So people walk backwards and they sleep during the day and they work during the night. And a few other examples of everything is opposite. And then now write a story what happens to you when you visit opposite land. Which is really nice because immediately, at least in my brain, you immediately get ideas about how does, I don't know, how does eating work? How does kissing work? All these things you can reverse in interesting ways. And we try to do the same with programming where we give kids it's exercises that are freer than you would typically see in programming so we give them exercises like create an animation or create a story or create a piece of music but then we do give them an example and one of the cool things we've done is we even use programming to create the constraints so we created a little scratch program that randomly selects an animal an activity and a place So it does that within the programming concept. Kids click a button and they get, for example, the cat sings on the beach or the parrot walks to the sun. And then that's the starting line of their program. So they get a randomly generated sentence. Everyone gets a different one in the classroom. And then from that, they have to build an animation. So we help them kickstart their creativity. But it's really different from traditional programming exercises where you would say, now we're going to calculate the square root of 12 or all the prime numbers or the minimum of two numbers or let's do exciting things like sort letters or these type of things. Did you notice a difference in how the kids were learning once they had a constraint versus when they didn't? Yeah, so we never really used no constraints. Rather, we used the creative exercises versus the very guided exercises. So what we initially, I created examples and I just told the kids, this is the game we're going to make. Here are the steps you need to follow. And then in the end, you have the game. And then in the meantime, we explained what to do. And then later on, we moved to a more free space where we said, now we want to create something like this crazy story. And here's a constraint and go ahead. So what we definitely saw in the second situation is that kids got a different idea of what programming is. And in a sense, they were more empowered about the programming. So we have this question after the lessons, we ask them, what is programming? What does it mean to you? And then in the creativity group, kids had more answers like, yeah, I can make the computer do everything. And computer programming is like a puppet theater, but on the computer, it's like an interactive book. So they had really a different view of what programming was, whereas the kids that we taught programming in a more traditional way had more things to say about programming. It's logic and it's structural and it's math and it's about games. You create games. So the biggest difference was people's perception on programming. And that's what I like about this program that they're using Scratch because it's not just about what you said, logic and numbers. They can, from what I understand, create a story, like an animation, applying programming concepts, also music. Yes, absolutely. What are other things they're doing? So the big things, the big categories of things they can create, one is games. Another one in these animations where the sprites in the game move and there are a lot of different blocks you can use to make sprites do something. So they can, for example, shrink and grow, or they can change colors, or can, they can turn around. And something else is music, which is really interesting because there are quite some concepts in music 
that also appear in programming loops, for example, uh, and also to a certain extent variables because you can have a certain key and that can change for the duration of a whole piece or sometimes it changes only for a few numbers. So there are quite some concepts that relate to music. Another thing they can also do is draw. Many of the people of my generation might still know the programming language logo that I used in high school yeah. that you can use to draw. And also drawing, of course, has concepts like variables and loops. And this is also a possibility in Scratch. So there's many things that are possible and different kids have different preferences, which is the nice thing about Scratch is that it's very much a general purple language within the scope of staying in a browser and being aimed at children, within that scope, you can do anything. Yes, and it doesn't make everyone do the same thing like a video game, which can be seen as like, oh, all the kids like games. Let's just teach them how to make a little game. But not necessarily. This is not true. No, and what you see is that because our industry is filled with the people that it's filled with now. We all love games. And then we project that on kids. I didn't think about that in the beginning. I just thought, oh, they're kids. They must like games. Because when I was a kid, I really liked games. So let's build games. And then already you're pushing out some kids because not everyone likes games. And the choice of game also, again, impacts the type of kids that like it. So the freer you are in what programming is the more kids we can potentially retain an interest in my presentation. I tell this story, which is a great story I love because it makes me look like a fool a little bit. I had this one kid in my class that wasn't really engaged and all the materials I brought him, he did it, but he wasn't really super excited. And I was like, okay, well, I'm like out of ideas. What do you want to build? And he says, I want to make a website for the local supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, what educator comes up with, let's build a yeah. website for the local... It already has a website. It's a pretty good website. It's fine. But this yeah. is what he wanted to do. And he was super engaged by this idea that he could help his local community by putting up the opening hours of the website and everyone could see when it was open. And he went there with his mobile phone and making pictures of everything in the supermarket so people know what they sell. And that he was like, on. Oh, everything clicked for him. And now he wanted to learn about lists because we need a list of things in the supermarket etc wow so that idea of giving kids the basic tools and then having them build stuff with it can potentially retain more kids or different kids and the cool thing is now it's a website for the supermarket but who knows what it is next maybe they can think of things that i couldn't even build and i need to learn new skills to make them build the things they want to build and that's so exciting yes especially in this example like you said he's worried about the local community and things like that, which are products that big companies, not all the time they address because they're very specific. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And the other thing that I liked is through Scratch there, you can create music and drawings. And we're even seeing these things being done, you know, by somebody like Google. They show their latest algorithms and they're drawing by themselves or they're building melodies and things like that so it's even happening yeah there's a field called computational creativity where artists mainly are already exploring the possibilities of using source code within art to generate artworks or to process artworks but that's not typically the type of exercise we feed kids or even university students even here in the university where i teach the examples are very much reverse a string 
count letters type of small tasks that you know are somewhat realistic of the things you might do when you're a programmer but then you're constraining them already to what you think a programmer will do rather than giving them tools and knowing from them what they want to build programming is very broad there are different concepts like we mentioned earlier the for loop now you're talking about reversing a string do children learn these concepts based on how old they are? Yes. Yeah, we definitely found age effects in our uh, study where we did we analyzed the behavior of about 3,000 kids in our online course. And we saw that uh, above the age of 12, kids really start to be better at formal thinking. For example, Boolean operators and variables are concepts that after 12 really click in your brain and that's not that surprising actually there's quite some work in development psychology in the 1950s that explains that there are four age groups broadly that you can recognize between zero and two two to seven seven to twelve and then twelve and above so we accidentally replicated psychology research from the 50s with our programming study Okay. And what are the good concepts to focus on when teaching younger children, like five years old, six years old? Yeah, especially the younger kids that are below seven. They're really not good at making a plan yet. Everyone that has a kid that is five or six can probably agree with me that they, they can't really make a plan. They can get really excited about things they want, but having them think in structures and Problem solving is just a little bit too much at that age. So what works better is just, even though, you know, we, we all don't really like it anymore, but more the imperative way of programming. First this happens, then that happens, then that happens. And the nice thing about Scratch is that sprites, the items in the game can communicate with each other using signals. So they can use something like, now it's your turn, and then the other character speaks or moves and these of course are concepts that also happen in real life if we play a game together then first it's my turn and then it's your turn or if we do a play or something like that so the trick is to start simple to not focus on concepts too much but just get them acquainted with the idea of if i put a block in or a line of code something happens in the computer it happens in sequences there are multiple actors and they can take turns in moving or speaking, those things are way more important to get a basis. Because if you start focusing on concepts immediately, then kids are learning an if statement, but also at the same time, they're learning the whole idea that you could tell a computer what to do, which is already quite mind boggling. So first get them settled in on the idea that a computer is a thing you can program. It doesn't speak Dutch or English. It needs its own language. And then only start to build on the concepts. Often we see people going, going way too fast. Often also because I don't know how the situation is where you are, but in the Netherlands, uh, schools don't teach programming, most schools. So often the programming lessons are taught by well-meaning programming parents that know programming, but they don't know that much about child psychology. Yeah. So if you're a parent listening and you want to teach in your, in your kid's school, yay, super good. I love it that you're doing that. However, their kids, they really first need to understand the idea of programming before you want to bother them with concepts. We don't do differential equations with seven-year-olds. Don't do nested for loops with variables with seven-year-olds. It's way too much. Yes. 
And it is the same over here in the United States. It's not mandatory to teach programming in all the schools, but they're trying to look in this space and how they can achieve teaching it from K through 12. Do you think we really need to teach teachers programming so that they can teach it? Yeah, that's a very good question that I've spent quite some time pondering this question. Yeah. So yes and no. On the one hand side, I think it's not necessary because you can coach a kid in learning even if you don't know the topic. You can say, I don't know that and let's Google it together. Let's find it out together. Um, Well, your program isn't working. What does it do? Let me help you. You can guide them. However, in reality, it's often the case that where I am, for example, all teachers need to have high school level understanding of all the courses that they teach. This is what they're used to. They're used to being a master of the subject. They're used to knowing everything. And if you say you can teach something without knowing the topic, you're teaching them two things at the same time because they're talking about programming. And also they have to teach in an entirely different way, which is quite scary. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective of the world we are in now, maybe it's a better idea if teachers have some knowledge of programming such that they feel comfortable and they can teach in the same way that they teach math or language now, and only then maybe start to explore and freewheel the way of teaching without knowing everything, because now it's scratch and in a few years it might be, I don't know, Python or something that hasn't been invented yet. So they will have to get used to the idea of kids advancing quicker than they do or knowing more, but because we are in the world we are in right now, it's probably best if the teachers know some programming. Some marketing in the meantime. After the summer, we will launch a free online course for teachers and educators to learn programming on the EDX platform. So maybe we can include a link in the show notes. And let me stress again that this is a free course for everyone where we will explain both some programming concepts, but also the, the child psychology principles behind, for example, those four levels of age groups. So if people are really interested in knowing more in a six week online course then in september they can do exactly that yes we'll include that in the show notes and that's actually what i wanted to ask why not just start showing these online courses in the school since there's a lack of qualified teachers to teach this Yeah, so the answer is more or less what i just said i know some schools that do it so we have an online course in dutch that has been watched by over 10,000 kids now, both at home, but also in a school setting. So there, of course, there are teachers that understand that they will never be able to learn and it's a better strategy to have the kids learn by themselves. But those are the front-runner schools. Most schools just follow the books that they have. And as I said, they're so used to being the source of knowledge that the idea of teaching something they don't know is just really very scary because they've never done it. So that's probably the reason why it doesn't work for all schools. And if a kid is taking, for example, your course at home, what role should the parents play in this process? <laughs> it's funny that you asked me. So we, we did some research into retainment. And one of the factors for retainment we found is not the, the unpresence of parents. So kids with parents present are less likely to finish the course than kids without parents present. So one of the ideas or the conclusions you can draw from this is that it's better if parents 
stay away if the kids are programming so that they can explore it on their own pace. And of course, you can still show interest, but there's a difference between showing interest and sitting next to the computer. And even though we haven't studied exactly how this occurs, why this occurs, my hypothesis based on like the supermarket story is that maybe the parents are pushing kids in a direction where they're not that interested giving suggestions about games that they really like rather than having them use programming as a tool but that's that's hypothesizing i don't know exactly what's going on there yes when will it take to get to the point where programming will be part of the core components of the curriculum like math and writing yeah, probably if we have more programmers or just in general technical people in government. So there are only, I don't know, currently maybe two or three people in our 150-seat parliament with an engineering degree wow. and maybe one programmer. And I don't think this situation is very different for other countries. Educators usually know nothing or less less than nothing about programming topics. And that also, I think, really influences curriculum changes because from the perspective of the government, which I can understand, it's Google and Facebook and all these tech companies are pushing for programming on the curriculum because they want more programmers. They don't see that societal value. They're just like, Google is not going to dictate our school curriculum. So there's pushback from the school boards and the governments related to education against the career perspective of programming so i try to battle that as much as i can because sure it's a good career but also it's so creative and it's so all-encompassing like the example i gave before about the u.s elections everything is software i don't care if you become a software engineer or a teacher or a butcher but you will live in a world where everything is software. And if you have no clue, then you're so much behind. And this is also a diversity issue. What we see is that kids with richer parents that have computers and internet access at home are the kids that get programming lessons at home from parents that know programming. And the kids that don't have a computer, many people, even in the Netherlands, many kids don't have access to a computer. They have maybe an iPad or mobile phone that they can play with, but they don't have a computer on which they can do more serious programming work if they're in elementary school, under K-12, for example. So what you see as an effect of no programming in schools is that the richer kids get programming education at home or they get access to programming education because their parents buy them stuff. Like, this is what happened to me when I was a, a teenager. My parents bought me a computer and computer because I wanted to learn programming. Mm -hmm. And other kids have no access. So it's also very much a social justice issue that everyone should have access to programming in schools so that everyone gets access to it and not just the kids with parents that encourage it. Yes, definitely. Well, Felina, thank you for coming on the show. This was a really good talk. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks.